if you had had the opportunity to read through any of the Gospels, and you come to the account of the death of Christ, if you sat and read all in one sitting, and you get to, for example, Mark chapter 15, where we'll be this evening, I think the question that would come to your mind is, did it really come to this? The little baby born in Bethlehem, who grew up in wisdom and in stature in the Lord, who healed countless thousands of people, who cast demons out of so many, who calmed the raging seas, who miraculously fed tens of thousands, all while preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now it finally comes. Jesus said it over and over again that this was coming, but it's here. Jesus Christ is falsely accused. He's condemned to die, and now he'll die the most cruel death that mankind has ever invented. And we pick up this story in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, and, and I'll read to you the passages we need to look at. And Jesus has just been beaten. His head bears a cruel crown of thorns. His back and his legs have been torn open to the level of muscle and bone by the merciless Roman flogging. What the death of Jesus Christ is not is merely the ultimate demonstration of how to give to others. The death of Jesus Christ is not a sad, unplanned ending to the life of Christ. The death of Jesus is not some sort of example of humble martyrdom. But what the death of Jesus is is the perfect satisfaction of the wrath of God against sin. It is the mortal blow against Satan. The death of Christ is the means to our reconciliation with God. And the death of Christ was the exact plan of God the Father from the foundation of the world. Tonight I'd like to just briefly look in two parts at what we'll call the darkness of death. The first part, we want to look at Jesus himself. We're just going to walk through this road together, looking at his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And the second part of our roadmap is we're going to look at everybody else. Everybody else in this drama, Jesus and everyone else. First, his crucifixion. Mark fifteen twenty one. as they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Those who were condemned to die by crucifixion, they were generally required to carry the 
heavy wooden cross piece to which they would be nailed. It could weigh over 100 pounds and it was strapped across the shoulders. John chapter 19 indicates that Jesus began from his trial carrying his own cross beam. His shoulders were laid open to the bone with lacerated skin, muscle tissue. Then they dropped the rough splintery wooden cross piece on his shoulders. He was so weak though from blood loss and from what was now a combined several hours of beatings. He couldn't carry it anymore and so we read here that they pressed into service one Simon of Cyrene, a Jew from the North African province which had a large Jewish settlement and they, they were here to celebrate Passover. And they took him to verse 22 Golgotha. This is a small hilly section just outside the wall of Jerusalem. Golgotha is based on the Aramaic word for skull. In Latin, we have the phrase Calvaria locus, which means place of the skull. We get our common word Calvary, which means skull or or place of death, located just outside the walls of Jerusalem. We read in verse 23 that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh and he, he refused it. Why did he refuse it? Well, this was essentially a, a narcotic. It was to deaden pain. And he refused because he would, according to his father's will, experience every sensation, every pain, every anguish offered at the cross. And he would be fully aware and fully cognizant when he received from God the wrath poured upon him. And the most significant event in all of human history is summarized in our English Bible in four words. And they crucified him. What a summary. It was 9 a.m. And Jesus' clothes were removed by the soldiers who cast lots for his clothes. Simon of Cyrene was ordered to place the crossbeam on the ground. Jesus would have been quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The executioner felt for the depression in the front of the wrist and he drove a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moved to the other side and he nailed the other wrist. He was careful not to pull the arms too tight but to allow some flex and movement. Jesus' left foot would have been pressed against his right foot with both feet extended, toes down, and the nail was driven through his feet, leaving the knees flexed. The entire cross would now be lifted up and placed in a hole in the ground with Jesus nailed to it. And now began the cruel cycle of pain. As Jesus slowly sagged down with more and more of his weight on the nails in his wrists, excruciating fiery pain would shoot through his fingers and and up the arms and explode in the brain and the nails in the wrists putting pressure on the median nerves. And as he pushed himself upward to, to avoid this stretching torment, he placed his full weight on the nail through his feet. And then searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet would, would be all encompassing. The dislocated joints in his arms By this time, his arms and his shoulders would extend his arms as much as six inches in length. And as the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps would sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing, horrifying pain. 
And with these cramps would come the inability to then push himself upward again. Air could be drawn into the lungs, but it couldn't be exhaled. And so Jesus would have fought to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. And spasmodically, he would be able to push himself upward to exhale and breathe in oxygen. Hours and hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his back as every time he moves up and down on the cross, it tears more away from his body. And eventually, a deep, settling, crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. What is so incredibly cruel about crucifixion is that it can take days to kill the victim. The longest known was nine days on a cross. Verse 26, we saw that an inscription of of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. The gospels all give summary details of what was written on the board We can put them all together. Matthew said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. John said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Luke's gospel says, this is the king of the Jews. And here in Mark, simply the king of the Jews. When you put them all together, and all four are summaries, put them all together though, what the placard said in three different languages, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The chief priests were upset at this. They wanted Pilate to have written, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But he simply said, I've written what I've written. There were two robbers on either side of him, more precisely insurrectionists. They would be associated with the murderer Barabbas, who was condemned at the same time as Jesus. Or these two were, rather. Luke 23 tells us that they they knew exactly the details against the case of of Jesus. Why, why would this be? Because they were there. They heard the trial of Christ because they were having their trial at the same time. One is on his right and one is on his left. The honored position of being in the middle is left for Jesus mocking him as the crucified king of the Jews. But by doing this, Pontius Pilate unknowingly fulfilled the prophecy given in Isaiah 53.12 that Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is crucified as a perfectly innocent man between two very guilty men. Now some manuscripts insert a verse 28 and the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. The best manuscripts don't have this and it's just simply borrowed from Luke's gospel. So your Bible rightly skips from 27 to 29. In verses 29 and 30, these verses make it clear that the crucifixion took place in a very public thoroughfare. People coming back and forth, coming and going, and people were venting their hostility toward Jesus. They were wagging their heads. This was a familiar uh, gesture of scorn, of mocking. And this fulfilled the prophecy given in Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And in particular, they remembered the charge made against Jesus about destroying and rebuilding the temple. And so in verse 30, they say, save yourself. If only they knew that he could have had he chosen to. But this was an act of total obedience, an act of self-restraint. In verses 31 and 32, the chief priests and the scribes 
the leaders of Israel who would, who would never stoop to speaking directly to someone on a cross. But right in front of Jesus, they spoke to one another in mocking terms. And then we see the death of Christ in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verse 33 says that it was at the sixth hour. This is noon. Darkness comes over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, I want to be very clear. Grammatically speaking, this is not a, a darkness that slowly settles in. This is not an eclipse. This is not a lot of black clouds. This is sudden darkness. It is complete. It's utter. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this as a supernatural event. Now, the big question is, what happened during this time? In the Old Testament, there's a clear association of darkness with the judgment of God. Joel 2, verse 31 says, The sun shall be turned to darkness before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 798 years before this moment, Amos spoke prophetically of the judgments that were to come upon Israel. Listen and see if this sounds familiar. Amos 8, 9, and 10. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Not one of the Gospels record any event during this three-hour period. This is something solely between God the Judge and Jesus the Sacrifice. There's a definite element of mystery to precisely what happened. Martin Luther secluded himself for a period of time to try to understand what happened during this three hours between God the Son and God the Father. And he came back saying that he was more confused than when he began his study. Here's what we do know. We do know that Jesus was on the cross to be the sin-bearing sacrifice for the sins of all who would believe in him. We do know that Jesus does not use the intimate address of Father. He speaks to God. We know that at the end of this time, Jesus would cry out that he was forsaken by God. Now, there's a traditional understanding that God turned away from Jesus during this time, that there was a separation between father and son, that their fellowship was broken because God is holy and cannot look upon sin, which Jesus became for us. Second Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin. There's definitely and absolutely a sense in which Jesus is abandoned. He's abandoned in that now 
He's in the awful position of the condemned sinner before God. He is, as it were, at the great white throne judgment. He's abandoned by the presence of God to bless him, to keep him safe. There's something we have to consider, however. Traditionally, we've understood that the ultimate judgment of God is complete and total separation from him. And this fits well with 2 Thessalonians 1.9, the judgment of the unsaved in the future. Quote, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. We have a small problem theologically, though. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. The omnipresence, the all-present nature of God does not have exceptions. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 can very legitimately be translated, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction coming from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. The judgment isn't the absence of God, the judgment is the presence of God. How do we know this? Because those who are about to be judged desire to run from the presence of God. Isaiah 2.19 And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. God did not turn away from Jesus in separation. This was not, as the song says, the Father turned His face away. Rather, God the Father, with whom Jesus had always enjoyed perfect fellowship, now put on the judicial robes as God the judge with his own son placed before him. And Jesus experienced the full brunt of God's wrath against sin. How full was it? Every one of your sins, every one of mine, every sin of all who would ever believe in him was burning itself out in the very heart of Jesus. And in some way that we can't possibly understand the fury and the the ferocity and the severity of God's righteous indignation and countless eternities in hell were relentlessly compressed into three hours of darkness on a cross. And in verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He expresses his anguish, his emotion, as we should with Scripture. Psalm 22, 1, it would be appropriate to translate this, my God, my God, why did you, or why had you forsaken me? This is the end of the three hours of darkness. Jesus isn't asking for information. He's expressing his grief. He's expressing his anguish. And the exact meaning of this cry, I think we could humbly say, is beyond our comprehension. The mystery of the atonement is to a great degree beyond human explanation. Exactly what transpired in those moments is known only to God. He asks this question, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? There is a mystery to that question, but there's no mystery to the answer. The answer to the question, my God, my God, why did you forsake me, is you. You're the answer. John 19, 28 says that after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. 
And then here in our text in verse 36, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus is quenching his thirst. This is not the gall. This is not the anesthetic. This is just something to drink. Why is he quenching his thirst? He is preparing his throat to declare victory. John 19, verse 30 says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, just the sour wine, kind of like vinegar, which common soldiers and field laborers used, he said, It is finished. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. That's from Luke 23. Mark gives an account. A summary of this account in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This is very unusual. This is unusual because the victims of crucifixion die of asphyxiation. But Jesus' death wasn't an ordinary death, nor was his shout the last gasp of a dying man. It was a shout of victory. It was a shout of victory that anticipated the triumph of the resurrection. You see, Jesus didn't die of asphyxiation. Jesus died because he wanted to. This is the shout of a man crossing the finish line. This is a shout of a man dealing a death blow. It's extremely manly. Here he is on the cross having suffered all night long, having suffered now for six hours. And this is the shout of a warrior that knows he is about to vanquish his enemy. He has successfully taken all the wrath of God upon him. And he is going to courageously and bravely face something that you and I cannot face. And that is death. And he's going to do it on purpose. And he breathed his last. He did it on purpose. And verse 38 says that the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the veil that hung in the temple between the holy chamber and the the holy of holies the place of access to God. The veil was very important. It symbolically separated all men from God except when sacrifice was made. And now the veil is torn. Interestingly, none of the Gospels explain why. But the symbolism is likely to mean that access to God is no longer through the temple. You remember those curtains you used to have that seemed so wonderful? And when you buy new ones, what happens with the old one? It goes out the door. No curtain. Access to God is not through the temple any longer. And then we come to his burial. Verse 42, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now it's about four o'clock in the afternoon on the day of preparation. That is Friday, the day before the Sabbath. No work was to be done. So Friday was used to prepare. And Joseph, his act was bold because this would say, I identify with Jesus and I identify with his followers, which is ironic because he was part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that had condemned Jesus. 
But we get helpful information from Luke chapter 23 that Joseph was a member of the council who was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision. He hadn't consented to their action. He was against it. And in fact, Luke 23 says he was looking for the kingdom of God and he found it. He found the king. Now, one of the most unclean things a pious Jew could do was to handle a dead body. And yet Joseph, no doubt with help, removed Jesus' body from the cross. He would have had to pry out the nails from the wrists and the feet. He would have carried the body of Jesus to the place of burial. Joseph bought expensive linen in which to wrap Jesus' body. He would have washed the blood off of his body. He would have soaked the burial linens in spices. And Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. It was never used. It was hewn out of solid rock. Isaiah 53, 9 says that Messiah would have a rich man's grave in death. That's Jesus. But this entire section, it has embedded in it, really, one of the purposes of the entire Gospel of Mark, it has embedded in it a a crystal clear message. And that message is a final call to salvation in Christ. It shouts this message to come to faith in Christ. It shouts the, the gospel. It's so important that now after having seen Jesus, seen Jesus, now we have to look at everyone else. There's like this final parade of all the characters, all these characters, and they're all taking sides. And they're answering the question, how will they relate to Jesus Christ? There's a clear line in the sand being drawn here. Two clear groups. Our passage here, it, it acts like a curtain call, like a parade of characters, and they've all taken sides. They've taken two sides. First, there's the side of those who reject Christ and reject the gospel message and reject repentance of sin. We have the soldiers who crucified Jesus. In verse 24, they're so completely apathetic about Christ that they literally are sitting at the cross, right near the cross after having crucified Jesus, and they're throwing dice to divide up the no doubt modest clothing of Jesus. That is a patent rejection of Christ. They're the passers-by from Jerusalem in verses 29 and 30 and the bystanders in verses 35 and 36. These people vented their hostility toward Jesus. And in verses 34 and in 35, when Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, he's, he's speaking Aramaic. Everybody knew what he was saying. They're not wondering, is he going to call for Elijah? They're not wondering. This isn't a real question. They're taunting him. They're saying, look, it sounds like he's calling for Elijah. Elijah was regarded as the forerunner of Messiah, the helper of Messiah. They're saying, listen, he's calling for his helper. Where is his helper? And when Jesus said that he was thirsty in John 19, 28, and the bystanders, they they take this sour wine. Someone ran in verse 36 and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to drink, saying, wait. What did they do? If they put it on this, on this stick, on a sponge, and they got it close to his mouth and then stopped and said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come. And they taunted him, wait, let's see if Elijah will come. This was not an act of mercy. This was an act of mockery. How about the chief priests and the scribes, the religious authorities of Israel? It wasn't enough to accuse Jesus. It wasn't enough to slap him and to punch him. It wasn't enough to watch him be flogged. Their shriveled, hell-bound, wicked little souls 
demanded more. They mocked him to one another right in front of him. Their own statements condemned them. They said, he saved others. They knew his power. Did you catch that? They knew his power, and yet they rejected him. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, they said mockingly, they'd seen his miracles. Do you know that the leaders of Israel never once tried to deny the miracles of Jesus? They said, save himself. If he's really the Messiah, he would save himself. No. Because he is really the Messiah, he will save the lost. They would never believe Jesus would rise from the dead in three days. They would still stubbornly persist in unbelief. Can I say this? The failure to come to saving faith in Christ is never due to lack of evidence. It is due to lack of belief. It is due to lack of faith, a stubborn will, a prideful will to prevent one from bowing the knee to Christ. How about the two criminals? The end of verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Can you imagine that level of hatred for Jesus that you would spend your last dying hours making fun of and mocking somebody else? That level of wickedness is incomprehensible to us. What is the point of the gospel of Mark? The point is you have the information that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He's preaching the gospel of repentance from sin. He's turning and turning to receive life in Christ through forgiveness and all mankind will finally and ultimately be categorized into two categories. Those who rejected Christ, such as soldiers, passers-by, bystanders, chief priests, scribes, even condemned criminals, and one other category, those who receive salvation by faith in him. Because the gospel of Mark would like to introduce you to your brothers and sisters in Christ. How about a criminal? Luke 23, beginning in verse 39, says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. At some point, the criminal's heart was changed by the Holy Spirit to believe on Christ. Talk about a photo finish. How about an out-of-town visitor? Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels all identify Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus. Simon was known to the early church as well as Alexander and Rufus. Rufus is likely the same Rufus greeted warmly by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. By the way, I don't know if you caught this, that Simon was compelled to carry his cross. Simon literally did physically what all followers of Christ must do spiritually Mark 8, 34, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? His cross and follow me. How about women who administered to Jesus and followed him? Mary Magdalene, verses 40 and 41, Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. How about Mary, mother of James the younger and of Joseph? Uh, Salome, this is Zebedee's wife, the mother of James and John. And verse 41 says many other women. And how about another group? Another group that's not named. But we have a hint. 
When Jesus died, it was three o'clock in the afternoon. This is exactly the time when the multitude of priests would be getting ready for the evening sacrifice. The city had gone dark for three hours, the sign of God's judgment. This was certainly a terrifying event. And once it, the light came back, the, the priests all knew that Jesus, the one who had claimed to be the Son of God, was dying on the cross at that very time. And so at three o'clock, the light returned. So the priests, probably wondering in fear what was happening, they, they gathered the temple to prepare for the evening sacrifice. And what happened when they gathered at the temple? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Only the high priest was permitted, and then only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, to offer the blood of the sacrifice on behalf of the people. Do you know, we can guess with fair certainty, that those priests were marveling at something? They were marveling at the fact that they were looking into the Holy of Holies, and they weren't dead. They weren't dead. What does that tell them? It tells them they were about to offer a sacrifice that was unnecessary. This is a picture of the gospel. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The evening sacrifices that the priests were about to offer were suddenly unnecessary. They were purposeless. I said that there's an unknown group that are your brothers in Christ. You know what group I'm talking about you'll meet someday in heaven? The ones who saw the curtain tear. Acts 6 verse 7 says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. One more brother in Christ I'd like to introduce you to. The Gospel of Mark introduces us to the commander of the crucifixion crew, a centurion. How does Mark's Gospel begin? It begins the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here in our text, verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, what was so unusual about this? Jesus didn't die the way everyone else died on the cross. He died with a loud cry. And this centurion had never seen that before. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. Truly is a word that expresses a deep, heartfelt conviction in the matter. That verse is the I told you so of the gospel of Mark. It's what the whole gospel has been aiming toward. This is the curtain call of the saved, a criminal, a foreigner, women, priests, a man who commanded the soldiers who crucified Jesus. So what is the message of the gospel of Mark? What is the message of this passage? It is found again. In Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Gospel of Mark makes that message abundantly clear. You cannot come to God without Christ. But you are invited to with Christ if anyone, if anyone, anyone let's pray we thank you our father for the word of god which is so very clear and as we come now to the lord's table 
on this precious and solemn Good Friday evening. We think of our Savior who was laid in the grave. How precious our salvation is to us, Lord. And we would ask you, and we would beseech you, Lord, to impress upon our hearts with depth and with clarity and with purpose and with sobriety that this perfect man died a horrifying death. He experienced an unfathomable wrath from a holy God instead of us. Bless us now, Lord, as we remember. We pray in Christ's name, amen.